It's Friday, November 20th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. An unfortunate update on many of the small businesses that receive Paycheck Protection Program loans. About 300 of them have had to file for bankruptcy. The stimulus funds were not enough to keep these businesses open, as the pandemic continues to hamper economic activity and also a lack of additional help from Congress. In filings, the pandemic was the primary reason for declaring bankruptcy. Shane Shiflett, data reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how tough it is for these businesses and why the number of failed companies who receive PPP loans is likely higher. Next, we'll tell you about Parler. It has been billed as the free speech social network. It has been the top app on both Google and Apple's App Store, offering mostly conservatives a safe space without fear of being deplatformed for your views. In many cases, when posts or profiles get flagged on Twitter or Facebook, they often end up on Parler with new life. It is a small operation for now, but more people are joining, including high-profile conservative voices. Ariel Pardes, senior writer at Wired, joined the social network and tells us what her free speech experience was like. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Billions of dollars in COVID relief programs for small businesses benefit ones who had lawyers and accountants to help them better connect to businesses, jumped to the head of the line, and the big banks accommodated. Joining us now is Shane Shiflett, data reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Shane. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Wanted to talk a little bit about how the economy is going and check in with some of these businesses that got money from the Paycheck Protection Program. According to a new article that you just wrote, there's hundreds of companies that got stimulus aid that are starting to fail. They're declaring bankruptcy. The money just isn't enough to carry them throughout this prolonged pandemic. Uh, You know, we're seeing cases rise again. We're seeing uh, states and cities, you know, impose new shutdowns on businesses. It's still really rough out there. And we're seeing that about 300 companies that received as much as half a billion dollars have filed for bankruptcy. So, Shane, tell us a little bit about what you're seeing. So, I mean, this could be the kind of tip of the iceberg here. The program was started at the beginning of April. Loans were going out in the middle of April. And, you know, they were really helpful to help keep employees on the payroll. But as we continue to experience growth in caseloads across the country, as you're saying, shutdowns, new shutdowns are potentially on the way. Small businesses, small, medium, even large businesses are starting to look around and question what their game plan is. And bankruptcy is becoming part of their toolkit, essentially, to either survive or try and make the creditors that they have as whole as they can. You know, some of these bankrupt companies that received the biggest loans are some of the top states that they're in are in California, Texas, Florida, New York. How did you come up with these numbers? Because from my understanding, and and this is a while ago now, when they released some of those numbers, you know, they didn't release a lot of data on who all the businesses were. There was just kind of like a lot of numbers saying, oh, these people got $150,000, things like that. Uh, so, so how did you guys come up with these numbers? The Small Business Administration or the Treasury Department, they released a list of borrowers and their names and their addresses for those who borrowed at least $150,000. So we took that list, I took the list, and I looked at bankruptcy filings, and I was able to sort of triangulate the names between both lists and come up with this final you know, number of 285 companies that impacted the file for bankruptcy. The list that we had to start with, the borrowers, is pretty small. There's more than 4 million businesses that receive these loans, and we don't know anything more than their zip code 
and the rough amount of what they borrowed. So there's still a lot of unknown here. And the journal actually is part of a lawsuit to try and force the government to release the full list of names, which is currently working its way through the court system. So we may know more about that in the near future. I saw that that actually got delayed a little bit where the uh, Small Business Associate Administration has a little more time before they have to provide all of that info. So obviously some more stuff will be coming down the pipe on that. You did make a specific mention of a business in your article, and I want you to help tell a little bit of that story. Keith Clark and Waterford Receptions, you know, the public events industry took a huge hit in all of this because we can't congregate in big numbers. Uh, Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about them, just kind of an example of how bad things have gotten for some businesses. Keith Clark had been running his business pretty successfully for the last 20 years. I mean, he had some tough times that he faced going through the last financial crisis. And, you know, he had a a pretty good year last year. I think revenues were around $6 million or so for him, you know, and he came out of Christmas doing a pretty good job. And, you know, after Christmas is typically a pretty slow time for the events industry. So things are a little bit leaner as you kind of head into spring and then and then business picks up again. But this year, obviously, state-mandated lockdowns, bans on large gatherings. He really couldn't do much. He was only able to host a handful of small events with less than 20 people, which, which really didn't help. So revenues actually plummeted to around $500,000 this year when he filed for bankruptcy. And so, you know, in this whole process, he had taken out a loan last year that was guaranteed by the Small Business Administration, and he personally guaranteed that loan. So on top of his business, you know, having a really rough time and not being able to figure out when he'd be able to reopen so he couldn't reorganize, he closed his business for good, and he expects to leave his house in the process to help make his creditors whole again. Wow. Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, he was doing pretty well. He had two different locations to operate. He had about 45 employees. So yeah, I mean, running all that costs a lot of money. And unfortunately, Mm -hmm. with the lack of events going on, that tends to happen. So we wish him luck, obviously, and hopefully he can turn some of that around if possible. Tell me a little bit about fraud in the program, because we had been hearing a lot of a lot of that. And then also there's going to be big losses to the government on a lot of the money that they're not going to be able to recoup. These PPP loans, it's not traditional underwriting. You're kind of just fill out a one-page sheet of paper that say, due to the economic circumstances and the pandemic, uh, my business is suffering and need these funds. And basically, they were handed out without any questions asked. People are, uh, companies are self-certifying, more or less. And the government didn't have a fraud prevention framework in place, for better or worse. So we've seen the stories, you know, over the last couple of months of large companies that took these loans um, and tried to participate in a program that it wasn't designed for them to participate in. And they've given some of that back. But the Small Business Administration's Inspector General has a hunch that there's a lot more fraud out there and they're starting to look into that more aggressively. In terms of government losses and whether or not we can expect to see much of this money back from these bankrupt companies, you know, the loans are designed to be forgiven or or they could be forgiven depending if the business used them for the qualifying expenses, which includes payroll. So the government's already kind of expecting to not get much return on this in the first place. But when it comes to bankruptcy, a lot of these loans are classified as an unsecured claim, which means the debtor, the business is going to go talk to its creditors and come up with a repayment plan, which is often far less than the original value of the loan. So it might be pennies on the dollar that the government gets back for these bankrupt companies, or the government can just say, you know what, I forget the loan, it's fine. So, you know, there's a lot of options still on the table that will play out in the courts. Yeah. And it's going to be interesting to see how this does play out. I mean, everybody's looking to Congress to make some new sort of deal to give stimulus to individuals. 
but small businesses are going to need it just as much. You know, as this thing keeps mm-hmm. going on, we're getting great news with vaccines coming on board, but that's still going to take time. And as cases rise, like I said, you were seeing, you know, modified shutdowns, all this, the pain is really still there for quite some time, it seems like. So we'll definitely keep an eye out for all of that. Shane Shiflett, data reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's one thing to say that an app like this is a space for free speech or free speech is sort of the fundamental part of the platform. But it's another thing entirely to understand, well, what does that actually mean in practice? Where are the boundaries? You'll recall that Twitter until very recently called itself the free speech wing of the free speech party. And, you know, obviously that doesn't mean that anything can be posted on Twitter. There are sort of boundaries to what that speech looks like. Joining us now is Ariel Pardez, senior writer at Wired. Thanks for joining us, Ariel. Thank you so much for having me. There's a new app out there. It's it's a new free speech app. Uh, it's called Parler. It's been the top app on both Google and Apple's app stores uh, last week. I think I just checked it right before this interview. It was still in the top 10 on Apple's app store. And uh, it, it's becoming a place where a lot of conservatives after the election were moving from Twitter and Facebook. This has kind of become the new place to gather. They have about 10 million or so users And uh, it's just gaining in popularity, like I said. Ariel, tell us a little bit about this, because you signed up for this app, and tell us how the experience went and and what it's all about. Well, just to clarify, Parler was actually founded in 2018, but it's really sort of picked up steam in the past week or two. And in the days following the presidential election, it actually doubled its user base. So it's not exactly a new app, but it's one certainly gaining a lot of attention recently. There are only two rules on Parler. You can't post anything illegal and you can't post any spam. But other than that, nothing you post is going to get moderated, filtered, or censored, which is sort of one of the recurring grievances of conservatives on platforms like Twitter and Facebook. So I signed up for this app just after the election, as a lot of folks were encouraging their followings to leave Twitter, follow them on Parler, and start this sort of social media exodus. And I found that it does sort of feel like mirror world of the kind of content you would see on Twitter, the stuff that's getting flagged for misinformation or otherwise moderated off of those platforms is sort of resurfacing on Parler and living a second life. Yeah, I love that you use that term, a mirror world for these other social media platforms. I think more specifically, Twitter, you even kind of laid it out, uh, you know, a retweet there is called an echo, likes are called votes. Mm -hmm. And instead of having your blue check mark or so, it's a yellow badge that says you're a verified influencer. So I guess it works very much in the same vein as Twitter. But even though it's gaining in popularity, this is still really small compared to the other big social media platforms. But even then, they're already seeing signs of having to do some extensive content moderation. They're trying to fight some misinformation on certain posts. And then spam was a huge issue still. I think uh, you mentioned uh, a specific experience uh, with uh, President Trump's official parlor account kind of constantly sending you messages about, uh, you know, supporting him and everything, right? It's true. Yeah, I think um, it's, it's one thing to say that an app like this is a space for free speech or free speech is sort of the fundamental part of the platform. But it's another thing entirely to understand, well, what does that actually mean in practice? Where are the boundaries? You'll recall that Twitter until very recently called itself 
the free speech wing of the free speech party. And, you know, obviously that doesn't mean that anything can be posted on Twitter. There are sort of boundaries to what that speech looks like. So on Parler, there's already rampant misinformation. When I logged on last week, there was a rumor circulating on Parler that George Soros, the billionaire philanthropist, had bought Parler and Parler's CEO and founder had to sort of dispute those claims saying this is fake news. But of course, when you say that, you know, you're not going to moderate or otherwise filter anything that's posted on a platform, you run into all these kinds of contradictions. Well, where exactly does that boundary get drawn? And and to your point about spam, I mean, what exactly is spam? You know, does it affect these verified influencers like the Trump campaign, which has an account on Parler and has been you know, mass messaging users with the use of a bot, you know, lots of questions. You can say free speech and not have to define any of those things until your platform gets too big. And then the real questions come. And that's the huge point. I mean, that's what we see with things like Twitter and Facebook going up and testifying before Congress about their policies and and all because they got too big. They had to start moderating things for the sake of the entire platform. And when things are small like this one, you don't really have to face some of those questions, at least just yet. Now, for Parler's part, they say, you know, they don't use any content recommendation algorithms. They collect little data on users. So how does this play out in practice? Because these verified users, uh, influencers, they get a lot of play. And you mentioned in your article that this really plays out less like a public square and really amplifies these other voices. More than other social platforms that I've used, Parler is set up to amplify the voices of its star users or these verified influencers, as they're called. So when you sign up for an account, you're prompted to follow some of these people with huge followings. And these are sort of the usual conservative celebrity types, Sean Hannity, Ted Cruz, Diamond and Silk. And these are the people who will populate your feed on Parler. It's it's much harder, actually, to find content from a user with a small following the way that on Twitter, for example, you know, people with no followings, absolute nobodies can sometimes go viral or have something get picked up or they use a hashtag in a clever way. You can sort of reach completely new people. On Parler, it seems like the design of the app is set up to really just give space and attention to these verified influencers, which I think is exactly why people are flocking to Parler. It's sort of like a refugee mentality of people who have been kicked off of the sort of mainstream platforms who are now trying to rebuild their audiences and are really just looking for something that allows them to have that megaphone quite easily. And that's where, as you mentioned, the mirror world comes into play. If it gets kicked off of one of the other major platforms, it kind of populates here and then could have a life of its own. Who know, you know, who knows how it grows after that, but people are jumping kind of back and forth. You mentioned the misinformation that was populating on Parler about George Soros buying mm-hmm. it out and all. What do we know about who does bankroll Parler at the moment? Well, yes, just to clarify, the George Soros piece is misinformation um, that has been disputed by the founders of the app. But we do know the Wall Street Journal recently reported that Parler has received financial backing from Rebecca Mercer, the major conservative donor. It's not clear if that's a Mercer family um, situation or if it's just Rebecca Mercer. Um, But certainly more details are coming to light about who exactly is paying for the app because Parler is definitely not courting the same investors as Twitter or Instagram once did. For an app like this, obviously, it's getting a little it's getting a lot of play right now. You know, some a lot of these users are kind of still using Twitter and Facebook and then pushing stuff over here, maybe for larger Mm -hmm. discussions. I mean, one of the curious things I think about 
is, uh, you know, it even comes in the way they set it up. You know, retweets are called echoes. And people talk a lot about echo chambers and kind of being in <laughs> these smaller circles and these smaller bubbles and just kind of constantly refeeding some of that same information back to each other. What does this do as that part of the conversation? Because, you know, some people are say that Twitter and Facebook have gotten too big and they have gotten crazy with their moderation. Does this have a place or, you know, will it get blown out of the water eventually? Just curious on your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really good point about the fact that this is effectively an echo chamber by design. I think when people complain about that effect on a platform as big as Facebook, which has billions and billions of users, what you're talking about is the algorithm sort of trying to sort out what it thinks you want to read or listen to and who it thinks is like-minded to you. But an app like Parler, which only has 10 million users at this point, is a self-selecting echo chamber. It's not an algorithm that's positioning people next to um, like-minded folks. It's, it's a self-selecting population. And so I think it's it's important to, to bring up that Parler is not alone. There are other apps like Rumble, which has emerged as a, as a sort of right-wing alternative to YouTube. There's Newsmax, a right-wing news website. There's MeWe, another sort of right-wing alternative to Facebook. All of these apps have emerged to provide an alternative to the mainstream where it's getting increasingly harder to live in this alternative reality where you don't believe that Donald Trump has lost the election or you believe that there is, you know, a secret cabal in Washington. And so if you're choosing to live in this alternative reality, you know, it, it sort of makes sense that you have to increasingly atomize the social Internet so that you can be around the fraction of people who want to believe that that's the truth. You did mention, obviously, that you signed up for this. You were using it. I'm just curious now about what your experience was. Did you find any useful information in there? Did you get any useful conversations out of it? Or did you just kind of feel like it might not be something for you? I'm very attracted to the idea of a competitor to the larger monolithic social media sites. I'm very excited about the idea that people are trying to um, mix up the social space and, and provide something new or maybe provide something where it's easier to have conversations with people you don't agree with. I didn't really find that experience on Parler as much as I hoped that I would. I sort of found that it, it read like you were subscribing to a couple of high profile influencers and it was designed in such a way that made it difficult to talk back and forth with people in the comments. I also had a difficult time, you know, using some of the standard features like the, the equivalent of a direct message on Parler is restricted to people who have verified their identity, which doesn't mean you have a blue check mark and you have a huge following. It just means that you have to send in, um, you know, a picture of a, an identification like a driver's license to the founders. But unless you're comfortable doing that, sending in your real driver's license information to um, a little known founder who has not much of a reputation to go on. Um, you can't use some of these sort of fundamental features in terms of talking to other people on the app. And I found that that was sort of ironic that for a, a platform that has defined itself as a place where you can speak freely, a place where your voice is never censored, I actually found that it was quite difficult to communicate. And my account at least felt like it had been silenced. Ariel Pardes, senior writer at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.